Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, more cries of a cover-up in Ottawa. Why can't the ethics commissioner testify in front of his own ethics committee in regard to the SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal? Lawyers acting on behalf of the Huawei CFO detained in Vancouver are speaking out about how she was detained. Do they have a point? And more than half of Canadians between the ages of 40 and 75 have mild hearing loss. 77% of them don't even realize it. Are you listening? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. More cries of a cover-up in Ottawa after the Liberal Majority Leader on the Commons Ethics Committee blocked an opposition attempt to hear from the Ethics Commissioner, Mario Dion, about his scathing report finding that the Prime Minister had acted improperly in pressuring his former Attorney General and her office to end a criminal prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. Many people are asking the question, why can't the Ethics Commissioner speak at the Ethics Committee? Isn't that how we got here? Isn't, isn't that how we got to the report was through the Ethics Committee? Uh, let's bring in John Bassard, uh, Conservative MP and Deputy op- Opposition Whip, and is with us now. John, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. How unusual is it that the Ethics Commissioner is not allowed to speak to the Ethics Committee? Well, it's highly unusual, actually, uh, as most Canadians were watching, and as I was watching, I mean, we were dumbfounded by the fact that the uh, Liberals used their majority yesterday to not have the Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion uh, testify in front of the Ethics uh, Committee. In fact, Mr. Dion was uh, readily available. He had indicated to the committee that he was willing to speak. And what's unusual about this is the fact that any time an Ethics Committee Commissioner report has been written. Um, The ethics uh, commissioner has always come before the committee to discuss the contents of the report. In fact, uh, when Mary Dawson wrote her report on the Prime Minister's trip to the Aga Khan Island, where he broke ethics laws there, Ms. Dawson came to committee. She answered questions, uh, not just from opposition members, but also government members as well. So it's really a highly unusual move not to have the ethics commissioner come to committee. Uh, The Liberals say that uh, we already have all of the info. There's been enough of this. This is just turning into, uh, you know, grandstanding ahead of an election. What questions, uh, is that valid? What questions still need to be asked? What information isn't out there? Well, I think, you know, when you look back and when the Prime Minister uh, ran in 2015, he said he was going to be transparent by default. And what the Liberals did yesterday was anything but. In fact, you know, there's been numerous cases, Justice Committee, Ethics Committee, House of Commons, uh, either through QP or debate, where any discussion uh, about any ethical lapses or any other lapses of the government uh, has been clearly thwarted by the Liberal majority. But uh, to your question, uh, there are definitely uh, questions with respect to Dion's report that only he can answer. Uh, you know, the Prime Minister just over a week ago came out and said that he fully cooperated with the Ethics uh, Commissioner 
although he disagrees with his report. Uh, so we want to find out, uh, you know, whether in fact there was that full cooperation. And we know, for example, that those waivers uh, were not extended. We also know that nine people relevant to this scandal were not allowed to provide the evidence that the Ethics Commissioner asked for. He uh, talked about that in his report. And uh, what is it that the, disag- the, that is, the Prime Minister disagrees with, with respect to the Ethics Commissioner report? You know, uh, the Prime Minister has gone out there and said this, but he hasn't given the uh, Ethics Commissioner an opportunity to come to committee and counter some of what the Prime Minister has been saying, which again is a highly unusual maneuver. Now, if the Prime Minister doesn't agree with the report, Scott, he can actually uh, appeal this and ask for judicial review of the report, but instead he's going around saying that he disagrees with it, but he's not giving the Ethics Commissioner a chance to, uh, to counter some of the claims that the Prime Minister is making. Why would the Prime Minister not, if the Prime Minister feels there is a wrong here, and I understand there was one uh, Liberal on the committee yesterday that wanted uh, Dion to testify, uh, why would he not ask these questions to the, uh, to the Ethics Commissioner directly uh, on committee? Well, and that's exactly the point. Uh, why would the Liberal majority continue to cover up this scandal by not having the Ethics Committee uh, ask the Commissioner directly um, some of the questions that they have? If the Prime Minister doesn't agree with the report, then they had a perfect opportunity yesterday at Committee to ask the Commissioner uh, you know, some of the questions that uh, apparently the Prime Minister has. Uh, so it's 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 we can't understand why they wouldn't do this. And as I said earlier, particularly when the ethics commissioners in the past have written these types of reports, they've come before committees to ask or answer the questions that committee members have with respect to the individual report, and that didn't happen yesterday. What were the reasons given by government for not providing the information or access to staff that the ethics commissioner wanted? Well, in uh, several cases, it was, uh, uh, you know, confidentiality, cabinet confidentiality. Uh, the prime minister has the ability to waiver uh, or to, uh, to disregard those waivers. He has the ability to allow that information. And I think the ethics commissioner was quite clear in his report when he said that uh, there were several cases where his attempts to gain information were actually uh, not being allowed by the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office. And in particular, he identified nine people that were relevant to this case that could have provided further information to get to the bottom of this scandal, and all of them uh, were, uh, were not allowed to discuss this situation with the ethics commissioner. So, in fact, yesterday, uh, once uh, the motion was uh, defeated by the Liberals to continue to cover up the scandal and not have Mr. Dion testify, another motion was put forward to have these nine people who are relevant to this come before committee to discuss and try to gain access to information that they were not allowed to provide to the ethics commissioner. And so that was defeated by the Liberal majority as well. And there are key players in this, and I'll remind you of this, Scott, the finance minister who had a meeting with SNC-Lavalin in Davos, which was identified in the commissioner's report. There were others like Ben Chin and uh, others within the PMO who could have provided some context as to why this situation occurred, why a multinational corporation was seemingly pulling the strings of the PMO, um, and none of that was allowed to occur at committee yesterday.
Uh, do you think that uh, SNC-Lavalin will eventually get a deferred prosecution agreement in all of this, in well, the wake of all of this? I mean, certainly if you look at the efforts of the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office and others, finance officials and uh, others in this case, they were certainly pushing for a deferred prosecution agreement. And think of how this this happens, Scott. The, you know, the meetings and the lobbyists and the finance minister getting involved and the prime minister getting involved and the pressure that was placed on the attorney general to, um, you know, change the direction of, of the way this was heading. Um, the fact that it was introduced in a budget bill. This is a piece of legislation that is a justice bill that should have been introduced either as a standalone or within the justice uh, legislation that was introduced in an omnibus budget bill so that they could rush this through. And uh, when it was brought up at committee, uh, there was very little discussion uh, that, that happened on this deferred prosecution agreement. So, you know, all of this, all of this stinks, all of this uh, needs to, uh, we need to get to the bottom of it, and Canadians need to understand just what went on here. And the uh, ethics commissioner in his report gave us just a small snippet of all of the dynamics and everything that was in play in order for the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office to make sure that they were going to get a deferred prosecution agreement. And so, you know, again, this is a government that said they were going to be transparent by, def uh, by default. They've shown nothing but, in fact, they've been as transparent as a brick wall. What happens with the Ethics Committee and this issue now? Where is this going? What, what next? Well, I mean, there's no other meetings that are scheduled uh, on the Ethics Committee, Scott. So, you know, this, this will be up to Canadians to decide uh, how this is going to play out. Obviously, there's, there's two weeks left uh, before, or sorry, two months left before an election. So, you know, this, uh, as much as the Prime Minister has tried to bring this into the court of public opinion, saying that he was defending jobs, which, you know, uh, is clearly not the case. Mr. Dion even said that. In fact, SNC-Lavalin said that this was never about saving jobs. This was about saving the Prime Minister and saving his seat, uh, as uh, Mr. Dion clearly stated in his report. But ultimately, this is going to be up to Canadians to decide. And, you know, I mean, you know, we've got an example here of the highest office in the land and a prime minister who is willing to do this. And what do we teach our kids, right? Don't lie, don't cheat, uh, tell the truth and make good choices. And when we've got a prime minister that is not doing any of that, uh, ultimately it'll be up to Canadians to decide whether these are the types of situations, uh, whether they conform to the values of Canadians, whether we want a government who breaches ethics laws and breaches laws in general. Uh, ultimately, it's going to be up to Canadians to decide. And I think, if anything, what this do has done is is really shine a light on the level of uh, involvement uh, and corruption that's gone on within the highest office in this land and you know the fact that you know the the, the institution of our judicial process being independent of political interference that's ultimately what Canadians are going to have to decide on this Scott and they've got two months to really chew on this and really understand how wrong this is in Canada and that this doesn't conform to Canadian values. Will we ever hear from the Ethics Commissioner? Is that up to Justin Trudeau? Ultimately, it would be up to Justin Trudeau. And they had a chance yesterday. And you can tell, Scott, that they were clearly being directed. They were uh, clearly being um, you know, the marching orders came uh, from the PMO that they were going to undermine any attempts 
to have the ethics commissioner testify in front of committee yesterday. The prime minister has that ability uh, to uh, to waive uh, confidentiality, to waive, um, you know, and to extend uh, the opportunity for people to talk about this. Uh, you know, there's still another part of this story that needs to be heard. Uh, Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould still have a lot to say. In fact, uh, an article that was published today, uh, Jane Philpott uh, effectively uh, called the Prime Minister a liar and uh, and said that there was much more to this story uh, than, than meets the eye. And so uh, the Prime Minister has that ability, and if he's not willing to do that, uh, then certainly, as I said earlier, it'll be up to Canadians to decide uh, the ethical and moral values of this Prime Minister. But eventually, uh, if there is a new government that is formed in October, then uh, Clearly, uh, you know, we're going to, uh, if it is the Conservative or any other party that form gov- hmm. forms government, then we'll have the ability to get to the bottom of it. You know, it almost report. reminds us of the uh, of the situation with the Robert Mueller report in the United States on Russia uh, interference with the U.S. election. And imagine after that report, if he was not allowed to testify, there'd be an anarchy, yet something very apples to oranges but something very similar here uh poll numbers recently out show that uh despite all of this the liberals the conservatives are neck and neck when this story broke way back when it seemed we were covering it every day everybody was talking about it it really resonated with canadians is the ethics commissioner report resonating with canadians as much as the initial story did well, I was out door knocking last night in my riding of Barry Innisville, and uh, there were definitely people that uh, were aware of the situation. They're talking about it uh, as well. And the other thing you got to understand too is that back in February, it took uh, took a little while for this to uh, for Canadians to really understand. Uh, how this undermines our democratic institutions, and it goes against the values that I spoke about earlier. And so, you know, as as the story uh, continues to evolve, and it is evolving, obviously with yesterday's ethics committee uh, hearing and the fact that the Liberals uh, decided to uh, shut the uh, commissioner down and not have him testify, these are things that Canadians are going to be thinking about more and more as we head towards the election. And so I expect... Um, that uh, this becomes uh, top of mind. I mean, listen, uh, you know, what are those values that we hold dear as Canadians, right? Tell the truth. Don't cheat. Don't lie. Uh, make good choices. This is, these are the things that we tell our kids to do. And, uh, you know, these are values that all of us as Canadians share. And uh, when we see this type of thing happening in the highest office of the land by the prime minister of this country, um, you know, that, that will resonate with Canadians. Uh, I have no doubt in that. John Brassard has been with us, Conservative MP for Barry Innisville, Deputy Opposition Whip. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lawyers acting on behalf of the Huawei CFO that has been detained in Vancouver on an extradition for an extradition hearing to the United States uh, has laid out claims alleging abuse of process by the United States, the FBI, the Canadian Border Services Agency and the RCMP in connection with her extradition case. Uh, That has just become uh, evident in the last 24 hours or so as far as evidence and uh, their case. Let's bring in Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP and on the line with us now. Joseph, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure. Does the Huawei CFO have a case here? Yep, certainly. Uh, if uh, Some of this is quite concerning. So, first of all, if uh, there are sufficient comments made by the President of the United States 
prior to or during the time of the extradition in Canada, seemingly indicating that uh, he would intervene in the process of extradition because of economic reasons. And and I guess the import of that is that it, this is somehow a leverage issue with respect to the trade dispute issues that are going on between the United States and China. That strikes to the heart of the legitimacy of the extradition request itself, because when one um, partner state sends a request to the other partner state, we presume that the evidence that they're sending us in their statement of their case is legitimate and based on actual evidence, et cetera, et cetera. If, however, there is sufficient evidence through comments made by the president that undermine that and suggest that there are other motivations for this arrest, that can possibly be an abusive process. And the second issue, which I find much more intriguing, frankly, is if the, um, if the request came to Canada and uh, either a warrant was issued or the warrant was held off so that the uh, Canadian Border Security Agency, RCMP, and other authorities related to the United States were able to conduct an interview with uh, this lady under the guise of something uh, under the Refugee Protection Act and, and conduct essentially a criminal investigation under that guise, um, holding on to that warrant and not executing it, I think that really uh, strikes to the heart also of the legitimacy of the process used and subverting rights that the individual had, and that can rise to an abusive process as well. Sorry, so, I was long-winded, but that's what I'm trying to tell. No, that's cool, because there's two reasons here. We'll start with the second one that you just broke down there, and, and help us a, a little bit more understanding this from, from a layman's point of view. So the charge is is that they detained her, the Canadian Border Services Agency detained her, and then started investigating her over and above what they would normally do with somebody who is entering or leaving the country. In other words, doing the work of uh, the RCMP or perhaps the FBI allegedly would have right. is that what we're is that is that the issue here yeah I'd need to read the pleadings myself which they filed but what what I'm gleaning from the reports thus far is that the second part and I think the stronger part of their argument is that prior to arresting her on an extradition warrant the uh, Meng's lawyers allege that Joint authorities carried out a plan to detain her, search, and interrogate her on December 1st, 2018, which they say was actually a covert criminal investigation under the guise of a examination under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act and Customs Act. And if that's true, um, then that is in contravi- contravention of the warrant if it was issued, right. and it's deceiving the individual and they're abusing certain rights which would inure to her because there's a warrant out for her arrest for extradition. So I think, I think this has legs to it. So uh, you were saying uh, the second part, this part, much stronger um, uh, a, a case. Is that easier or easy to prove? None of this is easy, easy to prove. Although, what, what about considering we have all of that video, we have what was released yesterday, and obviously these people were uh, investigating her for an extended period of time? Yeah, but I mean, I, I think what we have to delve into, uh, and, and that'll have to be flushed out more, is what, what came from that and if they had some legitimate purpose other than you know an investigation that was linked to the extradition. If, in other words, they had some other concerns under the Customs Act and the Refugee Act that were legitimate for 
Canadian Border and Security Agency to carry out that they would with anybody else, they may be able to slide by an abuse. If, however, the heart of the investigation, and it depends on what the reply from the government will be, the Canadian government, but if, in essence, it's a criminal investigation that is linked to the uh, the extradition issue, then they're in trouble, and I think that can be that'll be proven. So it, it you know, I I don't know the details, and that will have to be fleshed out in the in the pleadings in the court, and then eventually in the hearing. But I think it's a, a significant allegation which the government should be concerned about. So what should have been done in that scenario? In other words, once Canadian border officers realized who it was, what it was, then they turn that over to, they turn her over to proper authorities and they ask these questions and do the investigation. Is that is that the sticking point here? Yeah, so let's let's look at it this way. What I'm what I'm reading between the lines is that there was a plan. They knew Meng was coming into the country and that's the and issue. Yeah. And there was a plan right to detain her and question her, and direction may have come from, and these are just allegations, may have come from the RCMP who was working with the FBI at that time. If that is if that is true, and there was an extradition warrant already issued, then that's an abusive process in my mind. If, on the other hand, Canadian Border Security Agency did not know of an extradition request, was not directed by RCMP, who was then receiving instructions from the FBI, and they were conducting an extensive uh, interview with her for other legitimate reasons, then that necessarily wouldn't result in an abusive process. But I think in order for Meng's lawyers to make this argument, they have to have something more than just simply you know, coincidence. It seems that there, there is some evidence of this that they're relying on, and certainly their own client will be able to provide evidence of that because she was interrogated. So, and going back to your original question, in a hypothetical situation, let's say somebody's coming into the country and there's already an extradition warrant issued in Canada for their arrest. Once the Canadian Border Security Agency becomes aware of that warrant, they should be detaining the individual on the strength of that warrant and contacting the RCMP, right. and they should not be continuing to interview the person. Why would they have? Why would we have done it this way? Why would they? Why would uh, border security set them up for them? Set themselves up for this? Why wouldn't they? Because obviously everything's on video. Uh, you're you're arresting a very very high profile person. Were T's crossed, I's dotted here? Who knows? I mean, it could be that they thought what they were doing was lawful because it's often that um, another joint agency working with another agency will use the legitimacy of another act to conduct an interview. That doesn't mean, though, it doesn't call into question rights of that individual, uh, which may be violated. So, you know, Canadian Border Security Agency may have felt they were acting lawfully uh, and they were receiving instructions from RCMP and presumably there's some lawyers that were consulted by RCMP for this um, and they might they might have felt that they were acting lawfully and, and not creating any breaches of her rights uh, that being said I think it's a strong argument because if there is a con- concerted effort to detain under the ruse of another act to essentially further the US criminal investigation they've got a problem and you feel the second part the fact that they actually uh did this whole process and then uh, detained her. That's that's the bigger offense than what the president said or what Donald yeah. uh, or John McCallum has said or any of that. Because that yeah. seems to be what's getting people's attention in headlines. But really, yeah. it, it's this process that will. Yeah, catch McCallum's them. comments were just silly, and uh, it doesn't have any impact on the proceedings. I think it was just he was talking out loud, and he should have. 
with respect to the president, everybody's come to learn that he says things, uh, you know, in interviews or on Twitter that, you know, you can't really take seriously. But it may not be comments that um, detract from the legitimacy of the evidence that criminal allegations are made out. And so, so everybody understands, in order for Canada to extradite, we have to be able to establish in Canada that based upon the U.S. rules, uh, there is sufficient evidence of a criminal act. Um, and if that is legitimate evidence based on true breaches of, of criminal law, which we would have similarly in Canada, then an extradition can be made out. If, on the other hand, it looks that the charges are weak, the, the evidence is weak, and it's mostly driven by economics, that's something different, and, and it may not pass the test. Um, and, and I think this is, you know, it, if the president had said something more, like usually we had one case in Canada a long time ago where a U.S. prosecutor, I was involved in this case, had said certain things about resisting extradition and being subjected to violence in a jail. And I think, again, it was just silly comments. But in that case, extradition was stayed because those struck to, you know, the Section 7 rights of an individual being safe. And so they could be subjected to, you know, violence in a jail when they are exercising their due process rights in Canada. On the other hand, comments made by the president may have just been, you know, you know, there, she's arrested, there's legitimate issues with respect to criminal allegations here in the United States, but I may intervene because of economic reasons. You know, maybe that does not strike at the heart of it. I think those have to be examined more closely. I personally don't feel that as strong as the second part, because when you have legitimate government agencies, and I'm not saying the president isn't legitimate, but we hardly believe what he says anymore. But, you know, when, when you've got legitimate investigatory agencies acting in concert to subvert rights, that's very serious. And, and if they're not executing a warrant, which is issued by the court, um, I, I have grave concerns about uh, the rights of that individual. And I think that can rise to an abuse. So they should have issued this warrant right away and uh, read her her rights, giving her legal representation and, and such, instead of detaining her for so long in doing so. Right. So the warrant, what I'm just, just so everybody understands, the warrant I'm understanding, which is pivotal to their argument, had already been issued. Right. That's what I'm assuming. So our federal authorities... So she doesn't need to be warrant. detained here for three hours. They just... That's no, it. She's they just arrested. arrest She's her, right. hold her, and transfer over to the RCMP, and they conduct their, is their this, interview or whatever else. Is this enough? And many may say, well, they were making sure they were doing their due diligence for three hours before they handed her over. Could that argument be used? Is this enough to sway against the actual evidence that I understand has been accumulating since 2011-ish? Yeah, so it's a completely different issue. So it, regardless of the evidence of criminal activity in the United States, right. uh, an abuse of process is conduct on behalf of a government or government agencies, which strikes to the heart of the integrity of the process, and so that it would, it would rise to an abuse. So this is, this is, you know, aside from what evidence exists. And if the conduct is so abusive, then you can stay the, stay the extradition. Um, but again, your response was accurate. You know, was Canadian Border Security Agency conducting interviews and discussions that were relevant to their own duties and was not in concert with the RCMP or FBI and was completely an aside issue? If that is the case, then an abuse won't be made out. What does your gut tell you on this case? You know, I, I, I find generally in these extradition cases that the police are executing the rights in a fairly straightforward manner, but this is extremely high profile with the types of charges which we don't typically see 
in Canada, and so there may have been something going on. So I, I feel that if she's detained for three hours and being questioned at the border, it's not about fruits or vegetables being brought in, or she's claiming refugee status here. You know, they may have been speaking about what her business activities here, about money and other type of issues which are relevant to Canadian border, like coming in with money or, or making a living in Canada or any type of, you know, money, money laundering or something of that nature. But my guts are telling me here there's something to this argument. Uh, and, you know, there's, uh, there's some intrigue to it. So I'm curious to see how it'll play out in the court. And I think there's some legs to this. I, I don't know if it'll rise to an abuse, but I think it's a very interesting argument. Are you surprised the CFO put herself in this position considering her status? Look, I don't, you know, I don't know what Huawei's activities are or are not, you know, and what they're doing. I'm certainly they're an exceptionally powerful company in the world. Uh, and they're outpacing Samsung and others for, you know, not ju- for just simply the phones and electronics. So, uh, and, and she may have had legitimate business here to do. And, and so this might not have been something that was really on her radar would happen. But I'm, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that there wasn't some awareness within the hierarchy of Huawei that the United States was conducting an investigation and there were some concerns. And, you know, one cannot be blind to the fact that we are a signatory to an extradition treaty with the United States as well as many other countries. And if there's criminal activity, it's not uncommon for people to be arrested in one country and extradited to another. So I'm, you know, I'm at a bit of a loss as to whether Huawei was blindsided by this. And maybe they were. I I don't know. How will the Canadian government, how is the Canadian government reacting to what was presented yesterday? Um, I, I, you know, their reaction has to be very subdued right now because this has to get litigated in court. Um, and, you know, they're going to, you know, there's denial of, of the allegation with respect to, um, you know, a covert criminal investigation. But really what has to happen in a proceeding like this is they have to, respond to the abuse application in court that material will be a public document which the public can can then view uh and this should be litigated in court and not not in the media We're, we are able to talk about it and comment on it but really the government is a uh, a party to these proceedings and they should they should litigate it in the court how long can all of this take uh, even if it is tossed out and it never goes through to full extradition um this could take a few more months. Um, you know, their extradition is supposed to be expedited. So uh, hopefully it will get expedited. But, but, you know, this can play out for, you know, a few months. The hearing itself can take several days, and then the judge will have to write a judgment, and that will take some time as well. Uh, you know, if there's a fair amount of evidence and issues to uh, to work around, the judge will have to have time to write out a coherent decision, and they take this very seriously. So we're looking certainly at a few months. And once the decision comes down from the judge, uh, then there's all sorts of other avenues that's available to either the government or to Huawei as well. Uh, we've often talked on the show about how Canada's between a rock and a hard place here, trapped between China and the United States on all of this, and, and our allies and extradition and so on. Uh, is the Canadian government looking for that legal loophole to get them out of this so they can just set her free and say, done, we're done of it? No, I, I mean, I think the Canadian government would have to, if, if the allegations by Meng's lawyers is not accurate, um, and uh, it's, it's more explosive than anything. The Canadian government must respond to this strongly in the litigation, uh, and if they win the day uh, so that it's not an abuse, they have to carry on with their obligations because it's exceptionally important for international relations to continue. We are signatories to these agreements. We expect other countries to honour them, and it's part of 
you know, the comedy that we have with other, and I don't mean comedy, it's the, yeah. the, the, the relationships we have with other, other nations, and it's exceptionally important that we do our job and honor the rule of law. And I think in this respect, the Canadian government is doing what they should be doing. So when will we know if this is tossed as a result of what was presented yesterday? Uh, once there's a ruling from the judge, the judge will have to provide a ruling, and it'll be, a, I assume, a fairly lengthy decision. So weeks, months? Months, I'd say. All right. Uh, Joseph Newberger has been with us, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP. Lawyers uh, acting on behalf of the Huawei CFO have laid out claims of alleging abuse of process by the United States, the FBI, and Canada Border Services Agency, as, lo- as well as the RCMP. Joseph, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, it's my pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. More than half of Canadians between the ages of 40 and 79, that would mean me, uh, at least have some sort of mild hearing loss. 77% of them don't even realize it. Don't you even realize it when your wife's saying, or your husband is saying, you're not listening to me. Well, I am. I'm just not hearing you. Or perhaps it's selective hearing. Perhaps people just don't want to find out. Perhaps they enjoy it. They, le- they use it to their leisure. Uh, anyway, th- those are the stats. 77% don't even realize it, according to a new study from Stats Canada. To talk uh, more about all of this, Hish Hussein is with us. Uh, he is the doctor of uh, uh, audiology and CEO at the Auburn and Mountain Hearing Centers in Hamilton and is on the air with us now. Hish, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. Do we pay enough attention to our hearing? Do we just take it for granted? Why don't we look after this like we do our teeth and our health and everything else? Um, there are a lot of reasons. Uh, stigma is number one. Uh, people just don't want to know uh, that, you know, that they can't hear properly. And uh, they're afraid that if they come in for an assessment that we're going to tell them that, hey, you have a hearing loss. And then, hey, you got to think about hearing aids. And, you know, who wants to wear hearing aids? Hearing aids, the only treatment here? If it's what we call a sensorineural hearing loss, where there's damage to the cochlear hair cells, then yes, that's the, the sole solution. If it's, if it's a, something affecting the middle ear, uh, we can send you off for uh, surgery and correct that problem. So majority of the population has sensorineural hearing loss, where the hair cells are damaged, be it from aging or uh, employment conditions. Uh, those are things that will cause the uh, hair cells to just deteriorate. And then when the hair cells start deteriorating in the organ that you hear with, uh, it translates into not hearing so well. So you think people are mumbling or, not, or you're just not hearing things quite as well. You talked about the causes. Is this normal as a part of aging? Does this happen to everyone or is it environmental situations? For example, uh, working in a, in a workplace with loud noise, wearing uh, earphones, earbuds, what have you? Well, we have to be careful here. Uh, when we see uh, the elderly population, for example, and they say, and they have a hearing loss, and, and then they say to me, is this a normal process, part of aging? Uh, if you say yes, then they will say, okay, then everybody else is like that, so I don't need to do anything about it. So there are individuals that age that have perfect hearing, and then there are individuals that age that, of course, have hearing loss. So uh, is it a part of aging? Yes, as we all age, some hair cells will get destroyed, more so in some individuals than others. So uh, the, the solution is if it's starting to go, 
then we should be looking at solution, uh, a solution to hear better. And that solution can be hearing aids. When does this become a priority for most? Um, when you're in your 80s and 90s, of course, your hearing loss is going to be much more uh, severe for the majority of the population compared to uh, individuals in their 40s and 50s, right? So we like to see patients, uh, once you're in your 40s and 50s, we recommend that at least come and above, we recommend that you at least come for a hearing assessment at least once a year so we can get a baseline on you and and, uh, monitor the situation as you uh, age. Uh, Or if you're employed in uh, loud noises, that's something that should be uh, done uh, on an annual basis just to make sure that things aren't getting worse, right? Uh, how much does uh, technology contribute to this, whether it's wearing earphones, earbuds, what have you? Uh, I'm always telling my kids, uh, you got to turn that down. I can hear it just as well without them in as I can with you having them in your head. I can't imagine how loud it is for them. Uh, constant, constantly yeah. telling them to turn it down. How big a factor is this in all of that? So if you can hear it, uh, and it's in someone else's ear, it's too loud. Yeah. Um, or if you're driving your car and the next car uh, next door to you, you can hear that music, it's loud for that person. So the, the, the basic rule in uh, Ontario is if the sound level is around 85 decibel uh, of, of units and it's that loud for eight and a half hours a day, you will eventually lose your hearing. So, mm. of course, as the decibel rating uh, increases, the amount of time you're exposed to that uh, sound decreases. Talk to us a little about what you can do if you have this condition. Uh, we've heard of hearing aids, obviously, technology. They have changed drastically over the years, certainly in size. Um, but I still hear from people who have them, uh, when you have hearing loss, one of the issues is when you're with a, a group of people, you can't decipher between one person talking and the other. I've had some say to me that hearing aids just amplify that. Well, you're correct. Hearing aids, the main job of a hearing aid is to amplify sound. Uh, whether that hearing aid will do a great job in noise depends on several factors. So let's use the eye analogy for a second here. Uh, when your vision starts to go, you put the eyeglasses on, you get perfect vision. So if you had something where you have like a detached retina or the nerve connecting the eye to the uh, brain is not functioning properly, I could put the best eyeglasses on your eyes and you wouldn't see properly. So when we go to the hearing apparatus, uh, the organ that the end organ that you hear with, which is the cochlea, is is damaged. So no matter what we do with the hearing aid, we can't replace the damaged uh, hair cells in that organ. So that's the first thing is uh, we're working with a damaged organ as opposed to the vision system where the, the, it's not damaged. So if you're if you start off with a damaged organ and you put a set of hearing aids on, you'll get good volume, but mm, Not everything is going from the ear where you hear to the brain. And the second factor is the longer you wait before you actually get hearing devices, um, the more detrimental it is to our health. So what happens is the connection between the ear to the brain will start to deteriorate over time. Mm. And then in the brain, uh, we have some changes that lead to an inability to perceive speech in the presence of noise. So we get a lot of Mm. individuals that come, they wait the average wait is seven to 10 years, but once you waited that long and then you, then you put the hearing aids on, yes, you'll get great volume, but understanding speech in the presence of noise is not going to be uh, something that will help you. And that's where the level of technology is going to step in now. So you can get hearing aids that are lower priced and hearing aids that are higher priced, 
And the higher-priced hearing aids do a much better job of filtering out that background noise, uh, enabling you to hear better in the presence of noise. Uh, so in the end, it is better to get tested early and and find out what you need as opposed to waiting later. Later only uh, exacerbates the problem. That's correct. So all the research out there now is showing uh, lots of linkages between untreated hearing loss to things such as dementia, um, balance, dis- balance problems, um, cardiovascular issues, depression, social isolation. So in other words, if you leave your hearing loss untreated, uh, a lot of bad things will start to happen to you as you age. Now, I, I don't want this as a scare tactic, but you know, the research is showing that uh, working with your hearing loss can help the, the situation. Um, what about uh, tendinitis, and w- which is, I guess, a, a ringing in your ears? How is that different? How is that a part of this equation? Okay, so it's, it's uh, tinnitus or t- tinnitus, depending on American or, or Canadian. Um, what we find is uh, that is a noise that starts up in the cochlea based on the hair cell damage that you have, right? So there are other causes, but the primary cause of the tinnitus is, be, is that damage to the cochlear hair cells. So there's no medical cure. I can't give you a pill or there's no, there's no surgical procedure for that. And if you wait too long, it, it switches from being an ear issue to a brain issue. As the brain will take over this manufacturing of, uh, of a sound in your head. And so what they found in the research is if you have that noise in your head and you actually are prescribed uh, hearing aids and you put those hearing aids on early in the game, you have a higher likelihood of suppressing or reducing that noise in your head versus if you wait longer uh, and then try to do something for it. Mm. Uh, With most of these cases... Um, is it as simple as what you've just said that it's typical hearing loss uh, and and a, um, a hearing aid is needed? How many of these cases do require surgery? Is that common, it, uncommon, or is it most of the time a hearing aid? Uh, in the population, about thirteen percent of the uh, patients uh, will uh, have uh, a reason to go to the doctor for further. Uh, investigation, be it surgical or some other procedure. Uh, but the, re- the remaining percentage, uh, there is nothing that, we, that can be done for what we call a sensorineural hearing loss other than uh, amplification devices, hearing aids. Is it a sign that it could be something else? Uh, hearing, hearing loss. loss. Um, yes, if you have a, what we call an asymmetry where the hearing loss affects one side and not the other, typically a sign that something else is going on, and then we would refer you onwards to an ears, nose, throat surgeon for further investigation, possibly an MRI. Uh, but usually, majority of the population is showing up when they have the hearing loss in both ears. So if that's the case, and uh, we, do a, we do a thorough diagnostic assessment at our, at our clinics, and we find out that there's no surgical intervention, then the first uh, approach that we would say, the first thing we would say is uh, try the amplification. So when patients do experience hearing loss, uh, you said something interesting that, that stood out for me. Is it normally in both ears or is it one first than the other? No, it's typically both ears. In nature, everything is symmetrical. So when you, your vision starts to go, you don't uh, have one eye perfect and the other eye uh, that you have to wear a monocle. 
So with the hearing loss, it's the same thing. We expect uh, if we see a hearing loss in one ear, we expect to see the same hearing loss in the other ear. So if we're seeing an asymmetry, uh, we will send you off for further investigation. So, uh, not to get personal about this, but that's the situation I have. It's the left ear seems to be less than the right ear. So that is something that should be investigated because typically this happens where you just generally lose hearing in both. Correct. And I will give you this one word of uh, advice to pass along to the uh, listeners. If you have a sudden drop in your hearing loss, and even if it's one side, you have usually about 48 hours to get to a surgeon or, the, or medical care to look after that, or you may be permanently, uh, you may permanently have that hearing loss. And what about cost? As you said, many hearing aids, uh, some are cheaper, some are more expensive. Is there much difference? Uh, does cost prevent us from getting what we really need? Um, sometimes cost can be uh, a factor uh, affecting patients, but I will say this. Uh, in Ontario, the government has a grant, which is $500 per year uh, that you will get towards the purchase of hearing devices. And be- when we access that government grant, um, there is, we, we're not allowed to mark that price of the hearing aid up. So it's regulated in the province of Ontario. So again, the level of technology is what's dictating the price point and uh, the, the, the care that you're getting from that clinic. Uh, you were saying, uh, we were talking about regular examinations. Is this something, I believe you said, we should be do, having done once a year? Once, if it's once a year or twice a year, we would love, we love to see the patients back to get a baseline. And then uh, after that, we can monitor the hearing. So some people in, in the 20-odd years that we've been here, we've, we've had patients come and they're like borderline normal. And we see them back several years later and they start to develop the loss. And then we can target that hearing loss right away. So, uh, and, and for those individuals that are, you know, thinking that I don't want to get my hearing checked because I don't want to lay out the money for the hearing devices, there's all kinds of payment plans that are out there anyway for that patient to look after them. How big an issue is this considering our aging population and the aging baby boomer demographic? Uh, the percentages increase as your age uh, increases. So, um, in the population when you're 40 to 79, at least 20% of the adults will have a, a, a what we call a mild hearing loss. And then by the time you get out to the age of uh, 85, that number is, you're almost looking at every two and three Canadians will have some sort of hearing deficit. Do Does wearing a hearing aid affect your condition because you are amplifying uh, the signal, the sound that goes to the ear, is in the long term this harming the ear? No. So how it works is um, we do the uh, hearing assessment, and then we, we, we um, obtain hearing thresholds, so the softest sounds that you can hear across the speech frequency range. And then we take that data and we program the hearing aid such that the, the volume of, that you're getting is just right for across each of the pitches that are out there, and it can't go any louder than we program it. So you have what we call this dynamic range where the hearing aid works by amplifying the sound to a level that's comfortable for you, but it won't go beyond what's damaging to your uh, ears. Tell us about uh, what is the average uh, 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 he, uh, ear examination like? What, what is it like to go through one of these tests? What is the process? What do, what do they put you through? 
Well, when you show up to uh, the hearing uh, clinic, the first thing we want to do is check the entire pathway from the outside all the way to the inside. So uh, the cochlea being, being the end organ that you hear with. So the first thing we do is look in the ears, make sure there's no wax or foreign objects. And uh, there are all kinds of things that can be in patients' ears, including bugs. Uh, I've seen a pencil eraser stuck in a kid's ear. So, no. Yeah. So you've got all kinds of things in the ears. Once we, What about vegetables? <laughs> Um, I've never encountered a vegetable, but if you have, <laughs> send them my way. Peas, corn, I'm thinking, you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, we had a, an action figure in one child's ear once. Um, so, yeah, you get all kinds of things uh, in the children's ears as opposed to the adults. Uh, the, the, the funniest thing I ever saw or the saddest thing was somebody used a Q-tip in their ear, which, which by the way, you're not supposed to use. Mm-hmm. And the Q-tip went in the ear, and when they pulled it out, it was just the stick. The cotton part was left in there, and they left it in there for a whole year. Oh, no. So, anyway, what we do is we make sure that uh, there is no wax or foreign objects obstructing the, the path of the sound coming from the outside all the way to the tympanic membrane, which is the eardrum. And once we've made sure that that's clear, because we have all the tools to, to remove that, uh, we will check to see that the eardrum is moving or vibrating appropriately, and we have the, the correct equipment for that. And then we also check to see if there's a hole in the eardrum, if there's any fluid or pressure, much like the pressure you get when you're on an airplane, because that can cause a temporary hearing loss. And then we, it, we also um, check to see if the three bones, there are three bones behind that eardrum, we, we're checking to see if they're functioning appropriately. And once all that checks out, we'll put you in the sound booth and we'll check the cochlea, which is the organ you hear with. And we want to see what is the softest sound you can hear when we present the sound to you at different pitches or different frequencies. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, once that's done, uh, we will cross-check uh, a couple of things, including is the, is the hearing loss something that we can surgically correct for or, or is it something that's permanent? And then we bring the patient back out, and then we can have a discussion. Hmm. Uh, you talked about Q-tips. What is the best way to clean your ear? Well, uh, the best way is to use like a damp cloth and wipe the uh, ear down. And uh, if you want, you can go to the pharmacy or, uh, or anywhere that sells eardrops. Purchase the eardrops. Uh, we, we sell them as well. And you purchase the eardrops with a bulb and then uh, drop the drops in your ears and suck some warm water in a cup into the bulb that comes with the kit and just flush out ears that way. Or if, it, if it's really um, if it's really hard wax, you come see us. We, we have all the tools to take it out. Wow. So obviously something we should be paying more attention to. Correct. Uh, Hish Hussein has been with us. He is the Doctor of Audiology and CEO at Auburn and Mountain Hearing Centers in Hamilton. Advice. Get your hearing checked. Hish, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.